God's word. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, uh, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the Father's ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Uh, This, brothers and sisters in Christ, is God's eternal word. Uh, Brothers and sisters, Uh, In the first and second centuries of the New Testament church, uh, the outside world, uh, particularly the Romans, would malign the Christians and the Christian church by leveling a number of accusations against them. What they would do is they would take something that is germane or common to the Christians, either something that we believe or something that we say, or something that we practice, and they would misconstrue it to mean things that it didn't naturally mean to us uh, at all. One of these accusations that the outside world, particularly the uh, Romans, had uh, against the Christians was that Christians practice ritual cannibalism. Uh, This is one of the accusations that the Roman world uh, would rail against the Christian church, that Christians don't become a Christian because they're cannibalists. That, that, that is the uh, practice of eating the flesh of other people in order to worship. They thought that Christians were cannibals. Now, the Christian apologists, those who defend the Christian faith at that time, uh, they would point out the irony of this accusation, namely that the Greek and the Roman gods, if you know anything about their mythologies, uh, you know that it's somewhat founded upon the cannibalism that the Christians were being accused of, uh, as were many of the pagan religions of that time, and particularly the, the practice of uh, Egyptian uh, gods at that, uh, that time. They do things in their worship practices that I'm not going to... Um, elaborate upon in the pulpit. So they would point out the, uh, the, the, the sheer irony of this. And besides that, uh, the apologists in that time would say, guys, you don't even know what goes on in our worship service. You're entirely mistaken about what goes on in our worship services. And I think that there is a, a purposefulness of your being mistaken about what goes on in our worship services. And it's probably because of these two uh, great arguments that the apologists gave that the accusation of cannibalism stopped being used against the Christians by end of the 200s, beginning of the 300s or so. But think about the accusation itself. You know, just think about the accusation, the fact that the Romans and the, uh, the authorities would look at the Christian uh, church and say that they practice ritual cannibalism. Think about that accusation itself. What does it say about the church in that day? Uh, it, I think it suggests a number of things. Uh, firstly, it suggests that the church prioritized the word of God throughout its entire activity. 
You know, that is what we can very easily say. If they're going to be uh, accusing Christians of, of cannibalism, that means that at some level they're using a passage that sounds, well, uh, like what we just uh, read here. It tells us, the, that it tells us of the per- pervasiveness, the tenacity of the Word of God in our worship services. It also suggests that worship was a visible thing to the world. Worship is a visible thing to the world and that Christians were known by their activity in the worship services. It tells us, if nothing else, that Christians, how do you know that this person is a Christian? Oh, by how they worship, their activity in the worship service. And also it says something about the use of this particular set of verses that we just read, and it brings up a question. Uh, When we read the Lord Jesus saying things like he just did, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. When we read the words of the Lord Jesus saying, whoever eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood abides in me and I in him, uh, there's an association that we tend to make to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And uh, understandably so. There have been many theologians throughout the history of the church who apply Uh, this passage to the Lord's Supper, and you can grasp why it is that they say that. I mean, think of this. The miracle on the day before, what was the miracle on the day before? Well, he was multiplying bread uh, near the, uh, the, the, the sea, and he's, he's, uh, he's feeding 5,000. And what do we do at the Lord's Supper? Well, we eat bread at the Lord's Supper. Uh, the body of Jesus also is spoken of at the Lord's Supper, and that seems uh, to be what's uh, referred to here. Uh, the, the practice of eating, the practice of drinking as, as, as well. You know, so there's, there's a lot of things that, uh, that uh, go along with why people think that way. And so what I want to do tonight is a little bit out of the norm for me. Well, usually I give expositional, I'll be, I'd be giving an expositional sermon through the passage verse by verse, but tonight what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at this passage uh, more topically that's mainly intended, one of my main goals in doing this is to teach you to instruct you on how to foster good Bible interpretation skills. So that's one of my goals for us tonight, is for us to foster good Bible interpretation skills. And so this being the case, I'd I'd, I'd like us to meditate upon this question. Does this passage have to do with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Does this passage have to do with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Because whenever we encounter unbiblical teaching on this or any passage, uh, any unbiblical uh, teaching on any passage, especially when it sounds biblical, we should be equipped as to how to read the Bible and how to respond. So our theme for tonight is going to kind of give us uh, the answer um, in short shrift. Jesus uses this provocative phrase about his flesh and blood to display the loyalty Uh, the closeness, the commitment that his true followers would have with him. Again, Jesus uses this provocative phrase about his flesh and blood to display the loyalty, closeness, and commitment that his true followers would have with him. And for this, we're going to be uh, diving into this topic with the use of these three questions that are given in your bulletin. What's out there? What's in here? And what's it matter? So, our first question, 
uh, what's out there. Uh, what is out there? Uh, we'll be briefly surveying the land here. We'll be going over a few ways that people have interpreted this question, have answered this question, just to lay out the field of ideas and opinions that are out there. And the first understanding of this passage is what I refer to here as the entirely sacramental view, the entirely sacramental view. Uh, This opinion says that the entirety of chapter 6, both the miracle of multiplying bread And the dialogue here, the entirety of the passage, can only and purely be understood as having to do with the Lord's Supper. They would say that the only way that we can understand this passage is that it's all about the Lord's Supper. Only apply it to the Lord's Supper. What Jesus distributed in the miracle of the multiplying of the loaves was that he gave them the Lord's Supper. He gave them what was equivalent to the communion meal. And so they would say when Jesus speaks of his flesh and blood, he is directly referring to the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper, which they believe are the same thing. So we can say that uh, in short shrift, uh, if you're looking for a math equation for this, you can write this, uh, this down. You can say miracle plus Dialogue equals the theology of the Lord's Supper. Miracle plus dialogue, uh, that is, everything is found in the beginning of the chapter and everything is found toward the end of the chapter, equals what we are to believe about the Lord's Supper. Of course, this isn't what we um, believe about John 6, though. Secondly, there's what I refer to here as the gradually sacramental view. The gradually sacramental view. Uh, At its best, the gradually sacramental view states that the miracle of multiplying the bread didn't have to do with the Lord's Supper, but the dialogue did. The miracle had nothing to do with the Lord's Supper, but the dialogue did. So although the Lord's Supper wasn't administered in the miracle of multiplying of the loaves, what Jesus says about his flesh and blood in verses 51 through 59, our passage tonight, uh, 53 through 59, refers to the Lord's Supper, so they say. And so what we have here is that this passage graduates the reader, he graduates the, uh, the, the interpreter into a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper, first by a physical example through the miracle, to kind of prepare our minds for what's going to happen, and then by a spiritual dialogue about the sacrament. So with this opinion, if you want to put it into a math equation, it would be dialogue minus the miracle equals the theology of the Lord's Supper. Dialogue minus the miracle equals the theology of the Lord's Supper. They say this because otherwise the Gospel of John uh, would have nothing to say at all about the Lord's Supper, which would put the Gospel of John too much out of accord with the other three Gospels. So they say. Again, this is not what we believe about John chapter 6. And lastly, we have what I put here as the linguistically sacramental view. The linguistically sacramental view. Uh, This opinion would state that neither the miracle nor the dialogue directly refers to the Lord's Supper, but the language is there if it needs to. The language is there if it needs to. So the language is here, but the direct handling of the specific topic is not. 
uh, this would mean that the reader can, they can feel free to draw upon the language of the dialogue, and including everything else that Jesus says and does from here, to kind of get the gist of what the Lord's Supper is all about, because both the dialogue and the practice of the Lord's Supper at least sound similar to each other. Uh, to them, this passage makes most sense, and this passage, really, the meaning of this passage culminates where at the Lord's Supper, and they, although they acknowledge that it doesn't directly teach uh, upon that particular topic in this uh, context. So, in other words, to put it in a math equation for us, because we love math, for them it would be dialogue plus the rest of the life of Jesus, including all of his ordinances, equals the Lord's Supper. Dialogue plus the rest of the life and ordinances of Jesus equals the theology of the Lord's Supper. Again, this isn't what we believe about John chapter 6. Those, that's a brief survey of the three major views, uh, giving with a, with a broad brush the entirely sacramental view, the gradually sacramental view, and the linguistically sacramental view. All these three passages have something, all these three meanings have something to do with the Lord's Supper in some way. That's essentially what's out there. And so let's move on to our second question. Uh, now that we know what's out there, what's in here? Now that we know what's out there, what's in here? And for this question, I'd like to, us to focus upon the passage itself and what it says. We've been saying that these opinions, these three opinions, are not consistent with what we believe, mainly because that's not what the passage is, uh, that's not what the passage is, is teaching. We can see this on a lot of levels, and this is how to exercise good practice in biblical interpretation skills. Uh, firstly, we recognize the context. We recognize the context uh, that's going on. How do you interpret your Bible? Well, first off, you recognize the context. You recognize the context. Whatever surrounds the passage, the stuff that surrounds the passage, it has to be admitted that the dialogue uh, right here does not occur in the context of the Lord's Supper. It has to be admitted that the dialogue does not occur in the context of the Lord's Supper, and so it's unlikely that the Lord's Supper is in view. But what the context does provide us with, what it does present us with, is a crowd that's interested in Jesus because, and basically only because, he's a miracle worker. It does present us with a crowd who wants to come and go to and from Jesus as they please to have him, I don't know, perhaps entertain them, uh, maybe with another miracle, maybe one that's uh, greater in, in, in value or equal to the miracle of the multiplying of the loaves. In short, what they want, what the context provides us with, among many other things, is a crowd that wants a savior at a distance. That's what they want of Jesus. They want to be entertained by him. Uh, they want him on speed dial. They want him to. They, they want to go to him when and and and, uh, and and come from him and go to him whenever they please, so long as he is distant from them. That's what the context provides. In short, they want us that they, they, they want Jesus to be kind of like a Superman, as we've seen in our past uh, sermon on this, and we've seen this this entire time in chapter six. So we first off consider the context. Secondly. We consider the words and the concepts that are used in this passage. We consider the words and the concepts that are used in this passage. And there's at least two of these 
uh, words or concepts that we can hone in on. Of course, there's many more, uh, but I'm just going to pick two for tonight. Firstly, in all the passages that have to do with the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, Luke chapter 22, Mark chapter 14, and 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, the word body is used to describe the bread. The word body, we see some version of this is my body, the Greek word soma is used there, S-O-M-A, if you're looking for a transliteration. The word body is used there. But here, what does Jesus use? He says, he uses the word flesh. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks my blood. The the word sarx, S-A-R-X, is used. It is not an insignificant change. Uh, It is not an insignificant change. What is this supposed to do? It's supposed to take us back to John chapter 1, verse 14, where the eternal word uh, that was God and with God in the beginning, what became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Uh, This word flesh, sarx, in the Greek, is a word that calls to mind uh, the earthiness, uh, the vulnerability of human life under the sun, which Jesus took to himself. It says that, that he's taken our stuff. Uh, he's taken uh, everything that makes us human. He's taken skin. He's taken bone. He's taken muscle. He's taken, uh, he's taken human organs. Uh, he, he's taken all this upon uh, himself. Why? So that he can be in union with us. That's why it calls to mind the grittiness of the life that God took to himself in his incarnation and in his ministry and eventually in his death and resurrection. So when he says, eat of my flesh, in distinction with this is my body, you know that he's not referring to the Lord's Supper here. And also with the eating that goes on here. With the eating that goes on here. Look at the, the, think of this, uh, this concept There is no reference in the passage to a future eating. There is no reference in the passage to a future eating that uh, goes on here, one that only takes place at one event in the future, such as in the Lord's Supper. The only eating that Jesus refers to here is such that it is present and it is ongoing. Uh, Whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 53. Whoever feeds that is present and ongoing on my flesh, not will feed sometime in the future. Whoever feeds on my flesh has, in the present and in ongoing senses, has eternal life, has it, not will have it sometime in the future that is contingent upon your taking of the Lord's Supper. Whoever feeds currently on my flesh has eternal life. Same thing with verses 57 and 56. The eating itself is a present and ongoing activity, not something that they will only do in the future. So we consider the words, the concepts in our passage. And thirdly, finally tonight, uh, there's many more uh, things that we can consider. Uh, We consider how this event relates to other similar events in the Gospel of John. We consider how this event relates to other similar events in the Gospel of John. Uh, We know from other passages that we've uh, looked at that whenever Jesus uses an analogy... Uh, even an extreme analogy in the Gospel of John, and nobody understands this, he doesn't abandon the analogy. What he does is he leans into it all the more. We've seen this many times uh, in the Gospel of John. We think of chapter 2, where Jesus uses the analogy of of the temple, destroying the temple and raising it up again in three days, uh, relating to his death and resurrection. 
Uh, We've seen uh, this happen in chapter 3 when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about conversion, uh, that it's like being born again. It's like being born again. And so he makes that analogy right there. there. We've seen in chapter 4 when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well uh, about the converted sinner uh, now having water well up within them. He uh, leans into that analogy of the well spring of life. And we've seen it also in chapter 5 when he speaks of God as his father, the use of, uh, of the analogy of the work that the father does This makes himself equal with God. What does he do? He leans all the more into it, even though he's challenged very strongly against this. And so similarly, we see how he leans into this analogy when he's challenged. He speaks about himself being the bread of life and that his followers are to take him in such as they would their very food. So we consider how this uh, event relates to other similar events in the Gospel of John. So putting this all together, uh, what does he mean by eat my flesh and drink my blood. Uh, He means nothing less, nothing uh, different than he uh, did this entire time. Uh, Verse 28, this is the work of God that you believe in him. Verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the sun and believes in him, should have eternal life. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. And so in verse 51, whoever eats of this bread, he will live forever. What's he speaking of here? What's he speaking of? He means nothing less than God drawing you to Christ. He means nothing less than God drawing you to Jesus and working faith in you. He means that you are to have such a trust in Christ as to have him be your very life. That's what he means here. And brothers and sisters, this faith is still ours to this very day. That you believe and that you keep on believing is a result of you being drawn to the Lord Jesus it's, it's as a result of you being kept in him. It's as a result of you being nourished in him until the resurrection, which is to say, brothers and sisters, that we both presently and continually feed on Christ as our bread of life. That's what we do even now. If you, uh, if you by faith, if you live by faith in the Son of God, you partake of Christ all your life. Uh, St. Augustine says in his homily on this very passage, he says, believe, and you have eaten. Now, this draws us to our final question this evening. Uh, What's this all matter? What's this matter? Why is this uh, important at all? And for that, there's a lot to say uh, in in that question for sure. Uh, What does it all matter? Uh, We could spend hours and hours and hours, but um, firstly, we can say that it's important because we need to know how to understand our Bibles. We need to know how to understand our Bibles. Reading the Bible is one thing. Knowing what it says is another thing. But knowing how to understand it requires a totally different set of skills, not the least of which is that we stand under the text. We stand under the text. Nothing supersedes the intended meaning of the text, not even when it's been understood Uh, in a certain way for a very long time. Uh, 
the sermon tonight is a practice on how to wield the sword of the Spirit. That's what this is, is how to wield the sword of the Spirit. That you know, brothers and sisters, how to use your Bibles is paramount for living the Christian life, because from it flows everything that we are to believe concerning God and his duties that he requires of us. So it matters, firstly, because we need to know how to understand our Bible. Secondly, it matters because it highlights the extent by which our God condescends to us. It, hi- it highlights the extent by which our God will condescend to us. It tells us that Jesus has come in flesh and blood to own us both body and soul. The gods of the pagan time, and the gods of the pagans during the time of the New Testament weren't like that. Uh, the gods of the pagans during the time of the New Testament, they would, they, they, they would stay in heaven. They would have nothing to do with us unless they want to use us for entertainment or the occasional uh, proxy war every now and then. Uh, even some of the gods of our own day, they exist in our wallets and our bank accounts. Uh, some of us even nowadays bow to the god of ex- exercising power and influence over other people. Brothers and sisters, these gods, whether ancient or, or, or modern nowadays, these gods will never condescend to us. Uh, we always work our way to get at them, but we never arrive at them. Uh, the true God takes our, on our flesh. He takes our blood to come to unite us to himself, to unite him to us. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, has come to accomplish redemption for us. We could never do this for ourselves. It matters because it highlights the extent to which God will condescend to us in love and in grace and in kindness. Uh, After all, the Bible speaks about the riches of God's kindness uh, in Christ. It's not the poverty of God's kindness in Christ. He condescends to us in flesh and blood to take upon himself our own nature so that we can be in union with him. It matters because it highlights the extent by which our God condescends to us. Thirdly, it matters because it shows us what is to be the level of our commitment to Christ. It matters because it shows us what is to be our level of commitment to Christ and his, his whole agenda. This entire dialogue is about the union that believers have with Christ. In other words, just as bread is distant from the body, which is exactly the type of Savior that they wanted, right? Just as bread is is distant from, from the body, and then it comes into the body, and eventually in the eating and the, the digestion process, it becomes kind of difficult to tell what's part of you and what, what's, what's really not. So too, Jesus wants that for his people. Jesus wants that for us this very evening. He wants, to, he wants to indwell his people such that when others see you, they see Christ. So you're to have such a communion with him uh, that, 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 that you think like him, that you act like him, it, you take upon his agenda to yourself, that you are singularly devoted to him, to his cause in life and in death. It means that the whole of the Christian life is one of communion with him, not merely a communion that happens uh, at the Lord's Supper, although not certainly excluding it. Of course, not. That's not what I what I mean. Uh, what's here is that there is a there, there is a free and gracious exchange between us and Christ. That all of His is ours. 
that all of ours is his, it matters because it shows us the level of our commitment to Christ, what that should be. So what we've seen tonight is that Jesus uses this provocative phrase about his flesh and blood to display the loyalty, the closeness, and the commitment that his true followers would have with him. And I'll leave us with a few applications as we close. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this passage tells us, if nothing else, to find in Christ our very lives and to enjoy the riches of the communion that belongs to us, that we have with him. Consider Christ and find in him your very lives. Enjoy the rich communion that we have with him. Uh, Think about what's given to us in the incarnation. Uh, Jesus didn't come to us as a powerful creature, did he? Uh, Jesus didn't come, thinking off the top of my head, as a minotaur. Uh, Jesus didn't come to us as an angel. Uh, He didn't come to us as the embodiment of, uh, like Thor, the god of war, the god of thunder. Uh, He didn't come to us as the embodiment of the god of wisdom or something like, uh, like that. The Bible says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to us in his flesh and blood. And you know what that means? It means that God is for us. That's what that means. It means that God is for us. And he wants to be with us. He loves us. And so as he loves us, he wants to be with us. He wants to be in communion with, the, with his people because he is for us. He establishes his communion with us in his person so that we might enjoy communion with him in glory. You might have had a difficult week. And doubtless you might be looking forward to another difficult week ahead of you. But rest assured, brothers and sisters, Christ is to you the bread of life. He's determined always to be in communion with you and have such rich fellowship with you that you can have confidence in his love for you at all times. And even when your eyelids will close in death, uh, you can still rest assured of his communion with you, his greater communion with you, having departed from the tent of this body. So we find our, in Christ our very lives and we enjoy such rich communion that we have with him. Uh, secondly, brothers and sisters, keep studying your Bibles. Keep studying your Bibles. What we did tonight is an exercise that can be applied to the entirety of the Word of God. Uh, for the crowd that is present here in the context, uh, not understanding the Word of God was at the bottom of their disputation and their combativeness. They refused to listen to Jesus, and purposefully so, I believe, and they refused to take him for what he means. This is not to be so with the followers of Christ. Uh, We're to understand the word of God. Uh, We're to be fluid in gathering its meaning. Uh, The word of God is a mountain of gold. It's a cave uh, that is virtually filled with diamonds. Uh, It's a deposit of riches such that will never be exhausted no matter how deep you go into it. Every passage that you ever read or study demands all of your faculties. It demands much more than what you can give it. And besides that, the world itself needs the people of God to understand the word of God. Uh, Doubtless, brothers and sisters, you have family, you have friends, you have co-workers. Uh, They might very well deny it, uh, who are as yet unsaved. 
They need you to be fluid with the word and skilled as to how to understand it. Uh, you are the very means, we are the very means by which the gospel goes forth. Uh, Romans 10 verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on, in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Uh, the word of God is the engine to our evangelism. It's what the church uh, distinctively has to bring the light of the gospel to the world so that why we may present every man mature in Christ. So whether it's a verse at a time, uh, whether it's a paragraph, whether it's a chapter, whether it's a whole book, whatever it is that your bandwidth is, keep studying your Bibles. Keep studying your Bibles. Lastly, brothers and sisters, uh, related to this, uh, humbly invite others to partake of Christ. Humbly invite others to partake of Christ and be ready in doing so. Humbly invite others to, take, uh, to partake of Christ as, as well. It's a common thing for people, just as you had people way back in the first, second, third, and third centuries at some uh, level who scoff at the gospel of Christ, so too you have people nowadays who scoff at the cross of Christ uh, to say that Christians are stuck up, uh, that Christians uh, think that they're better than them. Or that Christians just are, are self-righteous people. Uh, they might be right in some sense. They might be right in this, and I've certainly uh, seen it when believers are prideful. They're, they're totally full of themselves. And it's kind of one of those things that you just wish never happened uh, at all. And a lot of it is because we really see ourselves as something exceptional. We really see ourselves as those who stand out from, from the crowd. But evangelism uh, will take upon itself a different flavor when we think of it as an invite. Uh, when we think of it uh, kind of as, as an invite to a feast, when we're convinced that we're just beggars uh, telling other beggars where to find bread. And so as we're filled with Christ who is to us the bread of life, uh, we have a distinct privilege. We have this privilege to show others to him as well. And so we need to do that humbly. We need to do that filled with the knowledge that we're really no better than they are, but that we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And we want them to have him as well. So brothers and sisters, humbly partake, or humbly invite others to partake in Christ as well. Let's pray.